The changes you make in marketing ops have ripple effects on sales. What you do in sales ops has ripple effects on customer success. And so I think regardless of who you report to, as long as you can take a step back, look at that entire customer journey and care about what happens in those other parts of the customer journey, that to me is the most important thing, regardless of how you might define rev ops or field ops or go to market ops. Welcome to the OpStars podcast. We host authentic conversations with revenue operations professionals running the show behind the scenes, holding things together, doing whatever it takes to innovate to solve problems, build processes, and manage the data to build a modern revenue engine that powers a great buyer experience. I'm your host, Rachel McBrearty. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rachel McBrearty. Our guest today is Sean Lane, Senior Director of Field Operations at Drift. Welcome, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Drift is a conversational marketing platform that combines chat, email, video, and automation to remove friction from business buying. Uh, with Drift, you can start conversations with future customers now and on their terms, not days later. Super cool capabilities. I love Drift. Uh, Sean is also the host of Operations with Sean Lane podcast. Every other Friday, he goes under the hood of how hyper-growth companies operate so you can learn operational tactics that you need to scale and grow to drive results. So I highly recommend the podcast. So click, subscribe, and uh, go listen to, to Sean's wisdom. It's fun to be on the other side of things. Absolutely. So Sean, you have such a breadth of operations experience working across different parts of the customer lifecycle. And today... Looking forward to chatting with you and getting your advice on how operations can play an instrumental role in designing and ensuring a great customer experience, one of my favorite topics. But before we kind of jump into that, let's get started with getting to know you better, your career journey, and a little bit about your role at Drift. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple components of where I've been in my career that helped me very much today in in the work that we're going to talk about around designing customer journeys and the customer experience. So I like to think that I've kind of done a few different tours of duty at different parts of the customer journey. So I started my career post-sale, working in customer success on things like implementation, account management, support for a restaurant technology company called Upserve. And so that's really where I started to learn about what things look like after a customer signed on the dotted line. And so ended up running uh, both onboarding and support teams in that part of the organization, and then completely switched to the other end of the customer journey and ran our SDR team for a while, growing our SDR group from seven SDRs to 20, being those folks who were prospecting into our restaurant customers, trying to book meetings for our closers. And I think any kind of half-decent SDR manager starts to learn about a lot of things that are ultimately helpful in an operations career. So things like how do you design the day in the life of salespeople on your team? What do conversion rates look like? How do they work right at different stages of the funnel? How do handoffs in the customer journey work? And so that's where I really kind of got my first exposure to, to the ops world and started to learn how that might work. And then was able to kind of leverage experience on both the pre-sale and post-sale side and created our own centralized ops team for the first time at Upserve. We were growing really fast and starting to see silos pop up in different parts of the company. And so we decided to build this centralized ops function. And so that was kind of my first full-time ops gig uh, and then use that experience when I came over to Drift. So been at Drift for about four years now and have worked across our entire customer operations spectrum, right? So marketing ops, sales ops, customer success ops, 
working across all those different go-to-market motions and have seen our company go from about 75 employees to north of 500 now. So as you can imagine, both the needs of an ops team and the needs of a customer journey have changed quite a bit as we've kind of gone through that hypergrowth stage. I can see why you can bring that depth of skills having worked across everything. We work a lot with SDR teams at Lean Data, and I do find it a fascinating function for all the reasons you talk about. And they need to know so much about the value prop for the company, how to position it, so the different personas and conversations you need to have. It's kind of a fascinating role and such a critical one, and I agree, a great way to start to really, truly understand why it is your customers buy. I think you have to know that in that role. Yeah. Being an SDR manager was both the hardest job I've ever had and the most fun job I've ever had, right? Like exactly what you just said about usually it's folks in the first couple of years of their career. It's really fun from a career coaching perspective, seeing them grow and take roles in other parts of the organization. But it's also really, really hard, right? Like there's never enough meetings. There's never enough pipeline. And so, you know, really being in that position that the whole organization relies on you to be the tip of the spear for prospecting, it's a stressful gig. So I I give so much credit to anyone who is uh, either an SDR or an SDR leader. I think it's so critical. The experience you have pre-sales, you also... (laughs) expect that's what you're going to get post-sales. So there's a lot of pressure on that role, for sure, as the kickoff of that experience, the human interaction with the company. I have a a question for you uh, because it's defined in so many different ways. When you think about centralized operations or revenue operations, how do you define that? Yeah. So you're right. There's a lot of definitions out there. At its most basic, I define revenue operations as those kind of three main go-to-market teams. So marketing operations, sales operations, and customer success operations. What I have found, though, is that despite all the different definitions that are out there and the pros and cons of a centralized versus a decentralized operations model... What I found is like, you're not always going to be necessarily in control of that, right? How we design our teams, how we set our folks up for success is obviously very important. But what I found is the mindset that we coach and instill within our operations teams is just as important. And what I mean by that is whether you're in marketing ops as part of a centralized ops team or you report directly into marketing, you have to care about what happens in the parts of the customer journey that you're not responsible for, right? What you do, the changes you make in marketing ops have ripple effects on sales. What you do in sales ops have ripple effects on customer success. And so I think regardless of who you report to, as long as you can take a step back, look at that entire customer journey and care about what happens in those other parts of the customer journey, that to me is the most important thing, regardless of how you might define rev ops or field ops or go-to-market ops, whatever you might call it. If you can do that, then you you probably avoid one of the biggest challenges in making a great experience, which is having it kind of being bumpy across the touch points. So if you're in marketing ops and thinking about that transition to sales, if it's a you know prospect or CS, if it's a customer, and making that a great transition is what's key to ensuring that smooth experience. Let's talk about, though, your perspective on revenue operations playing an instrumental role in designing and ensuring that great experience. How do you put that in place? It's a good question. So I think the first thing you got to do is if you're in operations and designing the customer journey, you have to recognize the fact that there are two different sets of customers that you're designing for, both your internal and external customers, right? So external customers are the folks that are buying your product. 
internal customers or all those different go-to-market teams that you might be partnering with. So marketing, sales, customer success. And so when you start to think about designing that journey, what you want to do is rip out any inefficiencies that might be at any of those handoff points that we were talking about. And so a great place to start is by looking at, you know, at those handoff points, that might be where you might find some friction or you might find places where things could fall through the cracks. And so when I'm thinking about talking to companies about their customer journey, we try to start with like the most simple milestones possible, right? What are those major milestones or those major handoff points in your funnel that you want to then ultimately instrument and start to count the number of things that are happening at those points in the journey. So you could start super simple, right? It might be number of leads, number of meetings we book, number of opportunities create, and number of folks that turn into customers. You can start that simply, and then start to think about how you want to instrument to measure each one of those core milestones. And so I think if you keep that in mind and keep those two sets of customers in mind, that's a good starting point when you're trying to to design a customer journey in the first place. That aligns pretty perfectly to conversion points where you have fall off, you miss the lead, you didn't book the meeting, didn't pass it along. All of those are are points where you can lose that prospect or customer. So that makes sense to look at it from that perspective. But when you think about those experiences, you think about the points where you, you might have the break point between the different humans. Do you also think about the digital side? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably the biggest difference between good operations folks and great ones is the ability to kind of look around corners and anticipate where things are going to break, right? Now, some of your internal customers might get a little frustrated with you because you are pointing out all the places where things can go wrong, but it's really important to try to plan ahead for those things. So to your point, some of those might be behavioral, right? Those might be things you could coach on, or you can have frontline managers who are keeping an eye out to make sure that you've got the right kind of behaviors that in place. But there's also a system side of things and a processes side of things that we as operators need to look in the mirror and anticipate where stuff that we're doing can also break. So I'll give you an example of a way we, we think about this at Drift. We looked across our customer journey and where leads get distributed or to your point about when meetings are booked and tried to anticipate where things are going to break. And we actually created this internal thing that we call the danger dash. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a dashboard that detects danger. So what we try to do here is create reports for any of those breakage points to identify where one of our systems, one of our processes, workflows might've broken. And then we email out that danger dash to all the relevant ops folks every single morning. And the dream scenario for an operations person is you wake up and the dashboard is completely empty. But if it's not, Then what you need to do is we kind of assign each component of the danger dash to a different person. And then you need to take action based off of what is happening there and what might've gone wrong. Another thing that's important, I think, even if you don't decide to go the danger dash route, maybe you do a ticketing system internally, or maybe you have a way of handling issues that come up with your go-to-market teams. The other thing that I think is important in distinguishing good operations teams from great ones is Good teams will get that ticket or they'll get that component in their danger dash. And like we as humans, we see a problem in front of our face and our knee-jerk reaction is to smack that problem away, right? Problem solved, move on with your day. But what we need to be able to do is take a step back and anticipate, okay, if I just smack that thing away from my face, like what's the ripple effect of all the other changes that might now need to be made? And so I think trying to find the root cause of any problem that you see 
inside of your funnel or inside of your customer journey is a really important thing to do. And, you know, you're going to need to dig into the really nitty gritty details in order to do that, right? You need to find the call recordings. You need to find the lead that broke it, right? Just looking at the numbers isn't necessarily going to solve those types of problems. And so I would encourage you, whether it's through the danger dash or not, anticipate the places where your customer journey might break and then go back and measure them because there's nothing worse than, you know, three months later, six months later, realizing that something's been broken for that entire time and you left a whole bunch of revenue on the table by not recognizing it earlier. That's great advice. How do you get your team onboarded and get the capabilities and skills to think this way? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think like it kind of comes back to the skill sets and like the the kind of North Star of your operations team, right? So when we think about our team, we fall back on having this North Star at Drift for our operations group. And the North Star is that we are there to build a predictable, understood revenue engine, right? And so what we want to do then is like the predictable part is really important, but even if you're producing over and over quarter after quarter, but you don't understand why, then that's going to be a problem, right? And so that's kind of the North Star that we use within our group. And then the other thing that we want to do as we add people to our team is we want to bring people in who are curious and want to be the ones who solve the problem, right? And so if you do have a bottleneck at a particular part of your funnel or at a particular part of your customer journey, having folks who really want to dive in and solve those particular problems is an awesome asset to have on your team. And so we really try to do that. And we also try to partner closely with our internal customers who are key parts of that customer journey, right? And so again, depending on the type of model that you might have at your company, having really close partnerships between marketing ops and marketing, between sales ops and sales will only make those conversations easier when you're trying to root out the places where things are getting stuck uh, inside your funnel. So talking to both those external customers on their experience, but the internal ones as well. Yeah. And like spending time with them, right? It sounds simple, but it's so easily overlooked for operations teams, right? If you're just the team that's sitting behind your spreadsheet and hoping for the best or designing processes for people you've never spoken with before, that's a huge problem. I think I mentioned to you before kind of the different tours of duty that I have been lucky enough to do in different parts of my career. And I think one of the things that that's really helped me to do is like have true empathy for SDR teams, have true empathy for onboarding teams, because I've done those roles before. And so when I'm talking to an SDR leader or to an implementation leader, like one, I've got a little bit of street cred because I've done the gig before. And two, I actually know what I'm asking them to do and how that impacts their day in the life. And so even if you haven't done those particular types of tours of duty, get out from behind the spreadsheets and go and sit with these folks, watch them as they go through their day in the life. When a new lead comes to you, do you see what I think you're seeing? Are you using the tool that we launched in the way that I thought you would be using it? All of those are good ways to spend time with your your internal customers so that you can ultimately design with those end users in mind, right? And designing with the end users in mind, again, applies to both those internal and external customers. I love that you're teaching your team the principles of good user experience design. That makes perfect sense. So you mentioned earlier, simplicity, helping everybody to get to simplicity. By understanding their needs, you can make their experience better. Which sort of brings me to a question I have. It might be a bit of a plug for Drift. A lot of the conversations I've been having lately, either on this podcast or with you know colleagues, is 
there's a shortage of skilled individuals. It's just a fierce competition in the labor market right now. And so obviously Drift provides capabilities to automate some of those interactions throughout the customer experience in super smart ways. If I can get on and ask a question and get get a chat answer right away, I do not need to call someone to get at that answer. So it serves me well as a customer if I can use some of these capabilities. So super curious, as you live and breathe this, how do you think about the best application for sort of the automation versus the human in that experience? Yeah, I mean, first of all, exactly the way you asked that question, we have to be good at this, right? We have to be good at this at Drift because it's literally what we talk about to the market, meeting customers where they are at in that customer journey. And so we at Drift, you know, eat our own dog food. We are customer number one of Drift, right? And so we spend a ton of time thinking about this. And so I'll tell you a couple of ways that we try to live up to that uh, for our own internal structure. I think, first of all, to your question about the distinction between humans versus AI or humans versus our bots, we very much try to let humans be good at what humans are at and systems to be good at what systems are at. And so what I mean by that is, you know, no sales rep in the history of sales reps wants to update values in a CRM. So if we can leverage technology or a bot or AI to capture information from the conversations that we have on our website and leverage that in our other systems, great. We're going to always lean on technology to help us to do that. But we also recognize that, you know, every single sale starts with some type of conversation. And so we want to bring human beings in where they can be the most valuable with the right types of customers at the right time, and then allow them to do what they do best, sell, build relationships and help articulate the value to those customers. I think the tricky part of that is knowing where the customer is at in the customer journey and designing both the human and the system side of things around that. So for example, if you are talking about a prospect versus a customer, just as simple as that, like what team do they go to, right? How do we get those in front of either the support team or the sales team or the customer success team or the sales team? Starting with very basic distinctions like that are a good starting point. And then you can identify where they're at in the customer journey. Should we reach this person through technology first and then bring in a human after? Or let's say you're a sales rep and you have, you know, only five really high value opportunities in your pipeline. And one of those high value opportunities is on the website right now. No reason for technology to jump in there. You want to be the person who jumps in and are, and is able to meet your big buyer where they're at. And so we're really trying to be thoughtful about that for things like target accounts, ABM, and allow technology to do what technology is best at and allow our sellers to do what they're best at. That's great guiding principles. I mean, just read somewhere that B2B buyers are now willing to spend up to 500000 even in some cases up to $1 million, only interacting through digital, never talking, actually engaging with a human. And that's how they prefer to, sh- to buy. And if that's efficient for them and comfortable for them, great. But there's also many of us who still want to get that advice. So yeah, being smart about that, I think, is, is super key. And it's going to become more so as, uh, you know, it's so easy to... to um, to lose that that buyer by making them wait or not getting them the right answer in the right way. It depends too on your, what your product offering is and who your buyer is, right? I think you'll see that example you just gave become more and more common in product-led growth go-to-market strategies, right? In particular, if you've got engineers buying your product one at a time, you might see that take hold more and more frequently versus, you know, 
the marketers or sales leaders who might be buying Drift might not buy it in a similar way for their entire team, right? And so knowing who your persona is and knowing how they buy, I think is is really important there. You know, my answers at Drift might not be the perfect answer for, you know, a, a pure product-led growth type motion. And so having a little bit of both in your customer journey or designing different versions of your journey, depending on how you plan to acquire business is probably important too. And I think that's maybe part of what's compelling about having the ops team owning the experiences. It's super important to design that for your business model, for your customers, for your internal audiences, and having that centralized team that can look across that journey and then create those processes in service of your business model is, uh, you know, super compelling because who else is going to do that, right? Otherwise, you end up in the different silos just serving serving the one, one touch point. I would guess a bunch of listeners are going to go, I can absolutely go in and start mapping out these different stages and see where the breakpoints are, you know, along that funnel. But what are the pitfalls they need to watch out for as they might embark on trying to sort of centralize the design of the experience and, and operationalize it? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I'll give you two that come to mind for me. So the first is overcomplicating things, right? Uh, we talked at the beginning about the importance of keeping things simple. I think as you start to design a journey, you, if you create too many milestones, if you've got you know 17 stakeholders who all have an opinion about ways that they're going to want to slice and dice the data to understand the conversion rates of your funnel, you're going to end up with a mess, right? And then ultimately, especially if you work for a fast-growing company, as your company continues to grow and evolve, the needs of both the measurement and of the customer journey itself are going to evolve. And so every time you need to make a change, you're going to have to untangle all the complex stuff that you built for the last iteration of this thing. And so starting simple would be the like the best thing that I would recommend folks do. And, and I speak from experience as someone who's overcomplicated plenty in the past, like that is a, a number one pitfall. And then I think the second pitfall is trying to create everything as if you are your own like special snowflake, right? A lot of the problems that we solve in operations have been solved by other companies before. And so we talk a lot at Drift about innovate, don't invent. Go find a role model. Go find a few role models of companies that have, you know, maybe a few years ahead of you in terms of their maturity and ask them about this process. And you'd be amazed, first of all, of how willing people are to share their stories, right? Like this podcast, my podcast exists. And so if you can skip over all the pain that those people went through and jump right ahead to the solution, chances are you'll find people who have already been through it. And so that would be the second pitfall is not seeking out that advice and just trying to come up with this brand new novel idea within your own company when chances are it's already been solved by somebody else. That makes sense. How much of what you're talking about putting in place revolves around technology selection. When do you go start investing and adding the technology to support the experience? Do you have a perspective on that? I do. I think, first of all, people jump too quickly to introducing technology to solve a particular problem. They use the particular tool at their last company. Their friend works at this company and they want to bring it into their company, right? My first piece of advice would be to pause for a second and try to solve the problem manually or articulate the problem you're actually trying to solve before throwing technology at it. A few things that this does is, one, people who are all of a sudden asking for that tool, when you start to ask them to try to solve it manually, you get a better sense for how real of a problem it is based on how persistent they are, right? How big of a pain would this be to do manually to start? So start there. 
Then once you've actually figured out the problem you're trying to solve and fully established that doing this manually is just not the right answer, then you can start to evaluate the types of tools that might help you to solve that problem. The other thing that I would say that I've learned the hard way is you can pick and choose technologies based off of a particular problem, but it's also really important to know where your company is at in terms of maturity before you bring in some crazy complex tool, right? If you're still at the very beginning of that customer journey that we were talking about, and let's say you haven't even decided you know, what your ideal customer is yet, you probably don't need that expensive multi-touch attribution tool yet, right? Like you're not there. And so starting with, you know, maybe at the beginning of the funnel, what is your data enrichment strategy? Do you need like a Zoom info or Clearbit to help you solve your data enrichment problems? Or if you have identified who your ideal customers are, do you need a prospecting tool to start to be able to identify, okay, do we want an outreach or a sales loft to be able to reach out to our customers? Or maybe you have like a really high volume business, right? You need like a lean data to help you route all of that inbound traffic in a smart way. So that, that's the, the other thing I would say is match the complexity of the tools that you're assessing with the maturity that your company is at. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes after you pick that piece of technology, but that's where I would start in assessing whether you need it or not in the first place. I think it's great advice because it's so easy to just think you've got to continue to be on a march you know, adding the technology and support rather than thinking about the nuances of the experience, the design, or, or even, like you said, your internal customers perfecting their workflows with the tools they're using today. Yeah, I think that last part you said is probably the most important once you get to the implementation part, which is how is that tool that you're buying going to fit into the day in the life of your end users internally, right? So if one of your problems is that you have a customer success team that does everything slightly differently depending on which team they're on. Everyone kind of has their own version of what the day in the life looks like. That's probably a good sign that you might need a platform like that. And so when you're designing it, how do you bring a little bit of uniformity to that day in the life while giving them the structure that they need to actually work through their day? What are the highest quantity of the highest quality activities that a CSM could be doing? And how does that tool going to help them? If you do all this work to implement, you know, a customer success platform, Gainsight or Tango or whatever you're using, and you don't consider how that's going to fit into your CSM's day in the life, like you might as well not have invested in it in the first place, right? And so people end up with these super expensive tools sitting on the shelf collecting dust because they didn't anticipate how that was actually going to impact those internal end users and how it was going to make their life better, right? If you can't articulate to that CSM in that case or in a sales team's case for other tools, why their life is going to get better, then you shouldn't buy that tool in the first place. I applaud your your user-centered design thinking. Thank you. Awesome to hear from an ops perspective. Is there anything else on this topic of ops teams designing experiences that you want listeners to get from this episode? I think the last thing I would say is just, you know, it's better, better, never done, right? This is not a static thing where you just create a customer journey. Great, we did that. Now let's move on. I think it's a constant iteration. And I think the other thing that people tend to do when, especially in a in a really fast moving environment, if you work for a fast growing company or, or your company is growing and changing all the time is you build that new fancy thing or you ship that new fancy thing and you move on to the next thing and you don't spend time to say, what's the 
goal that we were trying to accomplish when we built that. And then who's going to go back and measure that, right? Whether it's next month, next quarter, next year, how do we know that this stuff that we're building is actually helping? And so I would say, you know, it's a constant iteration. And then also picking the metrics that you're going to move in the business is a great way to then articulate the value of that work that you were doing. At the end of the day, like folks like you, Rachel, like the workflow is not the thing that's going to impress you, right? It's like the movement of this conversion rate or the way it freed up this person's time on my team, right? Like those are the outcomes that your that executives are looking for. And so making sure you're spending time to like put business metrics around those initiatives, I think is the last thing that I would say, because then you'll know whether or not the work you're doing is actually moving the needle or not. Perfect. Thank you. So I have two final questions. What advice would you give to someone who's just about to start in their first operations role? Be incredibly curious, right? Like be the person who wants to solve the problem. I think one of the ways that you can really quickly carve a place for yourself as an operations person is to become an expert in something. Be the go-to person in something. Doesn't matter what it is. If you can really be curious about a particular part of your how your company works and become the expert in that thing, it's an awesome way to carve out a place for yourself and then also a good way to learn new things. So you can, you know, sky's the limit after that. And if they take a page out of your book, they'll do that and then they'll move to another role and do the same thing again. Before they know it, they'll have all that cross-functional capability. <laughs> Perfect. And final question, who in the world of operations would you most like to take to lunch? Ooh, that's a great question. Claire Hughes-Johnson, who's the COO of Stripe. I have probably sent 25 cold emails to her to try to get her to be on our podcast. And so she's like the great white whale of, of the operations podcast. I will get her as a guest someday, but that's someone I would love to take to lunch, learn from. You know, I've read a lot of the stuff that she's written and I think she's just incredibly smart and has built an amazing business. I will have to put that in the show notes and maybe give her a shout out. No, appreciate the help. Well, thanks so much for being on today, Sean. I really thank you for having it. me. That it's been fun. Really great. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will, will appreciate all of that great advice. Thank you so much. The Upstars podcast is brought to you by Lean Data. To find out more about us and our suite of Salesforce native products for marketing, sales, and revenue operations, head to leandata.com. And then make sure to search for OpStars in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at OpStars and Lean Data, thanks for listening.